you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. You listen to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. That those were verses 65 to 68 of Psalm 119, and the verses appointed for today, Wednesday, September the 8th, 2021, are verses 49 to 72. We're also looking at 1 Kings 17, 1 to 24, continuing a look at the life of Ahab and now bringing in one of the most important people in Israel's history, was Elijah. We're also looking at um, the epistle to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and Matthew's gospel, beginning today, the second chapter, the first 12 verses. There's a lot to say about this um, passage from 1 Kings, and so it's gonna, I'm going to spend a little bit of time there. We may run a little bit over the time I normally run today just because of that. So anyway, so Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the, Ahab the king, remember, and the, the, they posit that this occurs as these two men, Elijah and Ahab, both went to Jericho to comfort Hiel, who had built rebuilt Jericho in spite of Joshua's curse that he had placed on it way back in Joshua 6, that if anybody did that, then that it would be at the cost of their firstborn. And he ended up losing two children, Hiel did. And so the, the Jews posit that this... Um, event, this this conversation occurs um, as these two men have gone to, to comfort Hill and the loss of his sons. So as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Now, a raven is an unclean bird, <laughs> so he's going to be fed by an unclean bird. It's an interesting idea. Um, and, and the other thing about the raven is, where else do you remember having seen ravens in Scripture? That's right, Noah. <laughs> Noah sent out the raven, and it didn't come back. But there's a difference between the dove and the raven, right? He sends the dove out, and the, there's a tenderness in sending the dove out. And the dove continues to return until suddenly it finds no place to on which to land. And so here we've got ravens, these unclean birds, who are going to be bringing food to Elijah since he has uh, proclaimed that it was his word, not God, his word that would bring about rain again. So he did. He went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So, so he's gone out of the land to the east of the land. And, and there the ravens are bringing him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. So his needs are all provided for. It might be a miserable kind of a life because, well, you'd be out there by yourself in the wilderness. But the, the other thing that, that the Midrash will say is, is that this, this bread and this meat was actually from the king's own table. It coming from Ahab. These, these ravens are taking food from the king and bringing it to Elijah. And then the Midrash goes on to say that Elijah actually got a little too comfortable here because his needs were all provided for. And he wasn't sharing in the suffering of the people who's who were suffering because of the drought that Elijah had brought on. And, and so the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord says, Arise, go to Zarephath, 
which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. So he's got to make this pilgrimage kind of a thing all the way to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. Now remember who the king of Sidon is. Here it's Ethbaal, who is a Baal worshiper, but he's also Jezebel, the wife of the king, Ahab. The, it's, his, it's her father. And so he tells him, Elijah to go there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, this is not going to be a, a Sidonian woman. She's going to be an Israelite woman. And so she, he goes, and he goes to Zarephath. And when he comes to the gate of the city, behold, a woman was there gathering sticks. And he's traveled a long way, remember, to get there. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. Because the drought in the land, he, he wasn't able to find much water as he went to Zarephath. And so he initially asked her for water. She's there gathering sticks. And as she was about to bring it, he called to her and said, oh, hey, bring me a little morsel of bread in your hand. So he's not asking for a lot, right? He's just asking for kind of a crumb uh, that he can have. This is the test. Is this the widow who is supposed to be providing for me? And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. I mean, could it be much more pathetic than that? you got this widow with a son who has nothing, and it's because of Elijah. And so she has to go then and, and, and make him something to eat. She says, I, I can't do that. I'm just gathering a couple of sticks to make enough of a fire because everybody else would have been gathering sticks as well. And so um, to make enough of a fire to make this one little thing that me and my son can eat and then then we're done because there's no more food and there's not going to be any more food because there's no crops because there's no rain. So Elijah said to her, don't fear Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour will not be spent and the jug of oil will not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So who's in control of the rain here? Oh, it's God, because he's the one who's going to send the rain. Will it be at Elijah's command? You're going to see in this and through the Madrash that I'm going to tell you about it, that, that no, God's completely in charge of this from beginning to end. <clears throat> so... It, she had faith to do that. She went and did as Elijah said. I mean, it took an extraordinary amount of faith to say, I will give you what I have. I'll, I'll make that for you first, trusting that you're truly a man of God and that the words that you speak are truly of God. And so she does. And then she and her household ate for many days. So all of them, she and Elijah and the son, eat for many days. The jug, the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe there was no breath left in him, which is death. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. So what's she saying here, right? I mean, because until Elijah came, comparing herself to these Baal worshippers and the people of Sidon, she's she's weighed in the balance against those who are around her, and she's she's found to be a righteous woman. But now that Elijah has come and he's proven himself by these by this miraculous provision of of oil and flour, that that she says now that you've come. My sin is exposed. I, I was righteous before you came because I, w- I was compared with those people who I live around. And, and that's sort of like the righteousness Lot had when he lived in um, Sodom. It was a comparative righteousness. 
that he had. And that's kind of the way they approached Noah as well. He was comparatively righteous. In his generation, he was a righteous man. But but they're, they're skeptical about his his um, sort of real righteousness. And, and that's what she's saying here, is, is that you've, you've come to expose my sin to remembrance because, well, now, now that I'm compared against a righteous man, this is what it looks like. And, and the death of my son is the result of that. And Elijah said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he looked and laid, where he lodged, sorry, and laid him on his bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I'd sojourned by killing her son? So he knows who the author of life is. And he knows that it's, that it's God. And that he's responsible because she's, he has put him in this place and he's responsible for this family now that he's with them. And <clears throat> then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother and said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now, that I, now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So here's an odd thing that you wouldn't know unless you read the Madrash, or you've heard me talk about this before, and that is is that, that what the Madrash teaches is that this, is, this child, the one who he restored to life, is actually Jonah, the prophet, whose name means the dove. So here we are again with ravens and doves and all that stuff going on, and Jesus says that the sign I'm going to give you this generation is the sign of Jonah, and we always presume that what he's talking about is that he'll be in the belly of the fish for three days and then spit out onto dry land. Well, this is the resurrection of the dead that we're talking about here, and so there's this powerful thing, because they believe that, that Jonah was a righteous man who, who went to the Garden of Eden, which is the place where the souls go immediately after death, while he was still alive, that he was so righteous. And so that's the, the belief that they, and certainly he was righteous compared to the people of Nineveh, but uh, otherwise, yes, he, he was this guy. And so that's, that's what the Madrash teaches, that this is Jonah that we're talking about here, and he was the first person who's actually resurrected from the dead. And so, but he died again, and that's the difference between... He and Jesus. And so that's the, there's my commentary on all of that. And I know that took a while, but I'm not apologizing either. So in Matthew's gospel in, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the king, in days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and they've come to worship him. Now these would have been men who, who would have been uh, around Daniel, well, they wouldn't have been around Daniel, but their ancestors, their forebears would have been. They would have been the Chaldeans, those those uh, magicians and diviners and, and astrologers who were up in uh, Babylon. And so these men, because they saw that, that um, Daniel had saved their lives, because he was able to do what they were not able to do, then, then they were taught by Daniel and, and learned from Daniel, and so that, that they had Daniel's scripture, because they would have, they would have uh, collected these things uh, from, from all in the region to see what sources of wisdom there were out there, and now they get this from Daniel, who they believe to have a wisdom superior to all the others, including themselves, and so they, that's what they're looking for. They see his star when it arose, and, and so they had seen from Scripture that this star would arise, and that would be the herald that the king of Israel had come. They said, so we've come to worship him. 
when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, because he's a king, and this is a threat to them if there's a king of the Jews. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, this is from Micah's prophecy, by the way, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for whom from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod then summoned the wise men and, and learned from them when the star had appeared. So how long ago did this happen? It took them a while. They tried to travel about a thousand miles to get there. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you've found him, bring me word that I, may, I too may come and worship him. And listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Remember the prophet that came and confronted Jeroboam as he offered sacrifices at the altar in Bethel? And, and Jeroboam wanted him to come with him, come to his house. He'd give him a present for, for being such an honest and, and verifiably so prophet. Because remember, Jeroboam reached out his hand to say, seize him. And then he couldn't draw his arm back. So it, it's that same thing. They, they get warned in a dream to go you know, another way and not go back to Herod because they know, they, they've learned in this that Herod had an evil intent and not a good intent in all of this. And what's amazing to me You've got a group of people who who have come from a thousand miles. They come into town. Herod is disturbed about it, and so he calls the chief priests and scribes and says, where's where's this king going to come from? And they tell him in Bethlehem, which is like six miles. So these men have traveled a thousand miles. These guys, yep, it's going to be there. And so they know the answers to the questions, but, but nobody's even interested in going out there. In spite of the fact that these wise men from the east who were following the star that was promised in Scripture, the same Scripture that they read, have come a thousand miles to pay homage to the king who's been born. But it's not a sign that they were looking for, so they don't go. They don't even go the six miles. There's not even enough curiosity to do that. And even Herod doesn't go. He sends them and says, hey, you, you go and then come back and make a report of what you find there. And it's just it's amazing. It's six miles. Send somebody to accompany these people. But, but no, they didn't. And it's all you see the provenance. Um, the providence of God overseeing this whole thing. And so it's, it's an amazing thing, but they believed the God of Daniel to be real. The, these wise men from the East, they're the only ones who will go. These men who have already come a thousand miles are the only ones who will go the other six miles to get to where this king is born. And so they believed. They saw the sign. They followed the sign. It was the sign they were looking for. It wasn't the sign other people were looking for. And so they followed the sign that they knew. And then they went to this place. They're just following the star. They don't know, apparently, about Micah's prophecy. Anyway, then you, you skip forward into um, Philippians 2, 1 to 11. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So if any of that's true, he says, if you have any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, be a unified body and have the same mind, which is what Paul's gotten at in, in Romans 12 that I've mentioned so many times lately, is that, be, that, that you're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
And Paul says that, that we should all be in one accord on these things. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, which is a teaching that Jesus did time and time again, particularly at the Last Supper, when he stripped down to the waist so that he could wash the feet of his followers. And he's telling them, just be like this. Understand that greatness in the kingdom of God is, is service for others. Not being served, but serving others. He says, let it... And, that that can say something about the elite in America today, right? Um, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. You know, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That That's pretty much encapsulated in that statement. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. And that means grasped, that word there, is to cling tenaciously to something like grim death. So he laid that down. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And having been found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, just becoming human wasn't condescension enough. He had to go even further than that. His condescension always included the lowliest form of service imaginable, which even includes death on a cross, which is a cursed death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So if you want to be exalted by God, if you want to, to, to be raised up in the kingdom, he says, go down. Descend, not to ascend. That, that's the path to greatness in the kingdom, Paul says, is that you would first descend to the level of a servant in order that he might bring you up. It's the same thing Jesus taught again and again. Don't take the best seat at the banquet. Nope, take the lowliest one and then let the host bring you up from there. Don't presume to something because you don't know who else might be coming to this thing. And so that's exactly the path Paul says is the path to greatness in the kingdom. It is not exaltation of self. It's actually the, the dissension of the self and the negation of the self, not completely the negation of the self, at like in Eastern religions. It's not that at all. It's, it's loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And so you're not counting yourself better, you're not counting yourself worse, but you're willing to serve that neighbor, not from a position of weakness or sort of that false humility thing that goes on or, or, or some sort of you know regressive belief that that the, oh these people are all better than me no no it's not that at all and it's it's that's the thing with the Elijah deal one of the things that God's teaching Elijah here in the, in this lesson is humility by the way because one of the things that he was apparently known for and 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 in Judaism was that, that he was a very proud man. He didn't like to depend on other people. And so first he has to depend on ravens and well, that's okay because they're just birds. But then he has to depend on this widow. But, but then God allows him to have the ability to provide the food for her. Once she's provided it for him, he can now return the favor. And so, but, he, but he's got to be taught humility because he has control over the rain and then he has control over all this other stuff. But the problem is, is that ultimately he doesn't have that control. And, and the way the Madrash reads is there's, there's three keys and that's the power of a woman giving birth, the power over the rain, and then also the power over uh, resurrection from the dead. And so, so the Madrash says, okay, so when, when he asks that God raise this son, what he's asking for is to give him the key to resurrection. And the response is, you can't have two keys, and I only have one. So you've you got to give me that one you've got over the rain. And the rain happens shortly after this happens with, um, with, with the raising of this child, who is, again is Jonah. And then we've got this connection with Noah. And what are we going to get next? Well, we're going to get rain. 
it's just, I mean, it's just, it's so interesting. But, but Elijah's having to be taught this humility that, yes, God loves me, but, but I'm still, you know, I, he was a proud guy. And so it's this humility that we have to have in ourselves and that has to come from God, actually, I believe, that that spirit that produces that humility in us. But we have to cooperate with that spirit. It's important for us that we not be humbled, that we be willing to humble ourselves. It's a choice we make, just like Jesus made a choice. We have that choice today, whether to be humbled or to exalt ourselves. Don't think too much of yourself today, because I'm telling you, and I know from personal experience, you can be brought low in an instant by God's love, because he wants you to be that other person. (laughs) 